Please stand with me. We'll begin with prayer tonight. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, teach and instruct us, we pray, from thy word. Grant to us a true knowledge of thee without our own human perversion or corruption of who thou art and what thou hast revealed, but help us to receive and to earnestly desire to know thee, to know thee in truth, uh, not a figment of our imagination, not some innovative idea about thee, but, but to know thee truly, our God. Cleanse us of our sins as we, as we begin this time of study that, Lord, our sin uh, would not hinder uh, our understanding, that it would not blind us, Lord, to thy truth. We thank thee, our God, for our blessed Savior and for thy spirit that even uh, is our teacher Bless this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's turn in our Bibles to John 17. We'll be focusing our attention tonight upon verses 4 through 8. John 17, 4 through 8. <clears throat> I'll begin reading uh, with verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I've glorified thee on the earth. I finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. By way of review, if ever you wanted to be or thought of it would be really neat to hear the Lord Jesus praying. 
for everyone to be like a, a little fly on the wall uh, to hear Christ and his calling out to his Father. Uh, we don't have to wonder what kind of a prayer uh, that the Lord Jesus would utter. We have an entire chapter here given and devoted to Jesus calling out to his Father. And that's why this is such a unique portion of God's Word. Uh, in no other place do we have this much space devoted uh, to the prayer of Jesus. And here we learn, we know the historical context. Uh, Jesus, later on that evening, is going to uh, be betrayed by Judas. He's going to uh, be arrested and taken to the Sanhedrin early the next morning to, to be tried, taken to the Roman courts before Pilate, and then before Herod to be tried. Uh, later on that day, uh, he's going to be placed upon a cross. He's going to suffer there, be buried, and then be raised from the dead the third day, and then ascend into heaven afterwards. So that's the historical context. But what was he praying for? He was praying <clears throat> that uh, he would glorify God, his Father, that the Father would glorify him. That there would be, in all that he accomplished, uh, that he would preeminently want to honor. That's, that's his desire, chief above everything, is to honor his Father. Not to bring dishonor, but to honor, to exalt, uh, to glorify the Lord. He prays as we concluded last study. Uh, he prays in verse 3, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. We talked about eternal life uh, as we ended our study last week, and I just want to, to summarize very quickly uh, the matter of eternal life. Now, eternal life is not first and foremost about the quantity, how long, that is a part of eternal life that once it begins, when we believe and trust in Jesus, it never ends. That is true. But eternal life is more about the quality of life rather than the quantity, the quality. And the quality of life, that which makes life, life, is Jesus says, to know the Father and to know Him, the Son. That is what He says is life, to know Him. This is not a distant knowledge of God. Uh, this is not a mere acquaintance 
with God or knowing certain facts about God. This is uh, a close and near relationship with God. That's what life is. Eternal life is not checking in once in a while. Uh, eternal life and life with God is living in communion with him, near him, close to him. It's a relationship like a father to a child or like a husband to a wife. This is speaking of a relationship, life, not death, life. You see, that life and that communion with the Lord is really the goal and the end of our salvation. Oftentimes, I think that we misunderstand, not to in any way denigrate the importance and the blessings of, say, forgiveness of sin, or the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to us, or our adoption as the children of God, or uh, our sanctification and growth in Jesus Christ, or uh, heaven, not to put any of those blessings down, but I, I simply tell you that all those blessings are, are a means to the end. And the end is to enjoy God. The end is to have life and communion with God. We can't have life and communion with God without the forgiveness of sin, without the righteousness of Christ, without adoption, without sanctification, without heaven, we cannot enjoy him forever. So those are, are all means to enjoying God. God knowing us in that close and near relationship and us knowing him. You see, that's the end. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, now and forever. If your understanding of salvation is not what I've just described as life, communion, enjoyment of God and Him of us, that that's the chief end, that's the goal of salvation, then, you know, I, I would just submit to you that you, you have, and I have, if that is my understanding, that we've misunderstood really the goal of salvation. It's not, it, uh, the goal of salvation is not simply fire insurance. It's not simply to escape hell. The end of our salvation not, is not simply to be raised from the dead or to pass through that final judgment those are all means to the end that God might enjoy us forever and we might enjoy him forever. That's life. That's what true life is. And so eternal life then is enjoying that life forevermore. It begins when we, not when we die, it begins when we trust 
in Jesus alone for our eternal salvation. That's when life begins. And it's eternal, it, it will never come to an end. Nothing, Jesus said, no one can, can take one who is given to him out of his hands um, or the Father's hands. So we're no longer under the guilt of sin. We're no longer under the power of sin. We're no longer under God's condemnation. Why? In order that we might enjoy him. In order that we might have fellowship and communion with him. And as I said, if our view is that, oh, I'll, I'll really enjoy God in heaven. I'll really take this seriously then. Uh, no, we don't understand that life begins now. That if we're not enjoying God now, uh, if time spent with him is, is, you know, just not that important to us. Uh, if uh, giving up one day a week to spend with him is not important to us, then why would all eternity be important to us? John 17, 4 begins our new section. Jesus says, and again, remember, this is, he's not speaking, uh, though I believe his disciples hear this prayer, they're present in hearing the prayer. This is a prayer. This is addressed to the Father. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Jesus makes it very clear he did not come to glorify himself, but he came to glorify the Father. Jesus humbled himself, took upon himself the form of a servant in becoming a man. That classic passage of Christ's humiliation and humbling himself uh, is found in Philippians chapter 2, and I, verses 1 through 11. I think it's well worth just reading that to remind ourselves of Christ's humiliation and that. Uh, his humiliation, we cannot obviously uh, have an exact uh, humiliation like his because he was God and humbled himself in becoming the God-man. He didn't lose anything, he only added something, humanity. Uh, we don't start off as being divine and humbling ourselves, but there is, he is an example to us that if he... The Son of God humbled himself. How much more we should humble ourselves? Did anyone ever humble himself to that degree? Only Jesus has humbled himself to that degree. But notice what we read. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, 
being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There, there are two states uh, to uh, Christ's uh, ministry and work. Uh, there is the state of humiliation and the state of exaltation. The state of humiliation is from the time of his conception uh, to the time of his burial. That's all his, the period of his uh, humiliation. His exaltation begins with his resurrection. And then after his resurrection, his bodily resurrection, then his, his ascension into heaven, his enthronement at the right hand of God, his coming, uh, his ruling over the world as king of kings now, uh, his coming a second time, and the final, uh, the final resurrection, the final judgment, and then um, the eternal glory. So again, two states of, of uh, Christ's uh, ministry and his work uh, in a state of humiliation, which we've read both of his, his humiliation uh, in Philippians 2, but also his exaltation. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and so from verse 9 on, speaks of his exaltation. Remember when the disciples in John chapter 4 um, had gone to find food, and uh, Jesus began talking to this woman by the well, a Samaritan woman, and, the, and we'll not delve into their conversation, but when they returned, uh, they asked him if he had eaten. Uh, and uh, he said that he had eaten, uh, and he was strengthened, and he was energized, but not with natural food. In John 4, 34, Verse 33 says, Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? <clears throat> Verse 34, Jesus saith unto them, Notice what he says, My meat, or my food, is to do the will of him that sent me, 
and to finish his work. That was what strengthened the Lord Jesus. That was what energized him. When uh, natural food, one would imagine, is what he needed, uh, he said, in talking with this woman and conveying the truth of the Lord to her, and her questions and, and this discussion has been a food to him, to strengthen him. You see, the point that I think the Lord Jesus is making in his prayer, I have glorified thee on earth, he says in verse 4. Modern Christianity uh, is certainly, sadly, different from biblical Christianity and Christianity in, in various eras historically, periods of time historically. Modern Christianity has become so self-centered. It's all about what makes me feel good about myself. That's kind of where, you know, you, you, you hear so much preaching today and basically the goal is to, of the minister is to make those in the congregation feel good about themselves, thinking that will that will uh, cause them to want to return. Uh, that will want them to contribute uh, to their building fund or, or their projects or whatever. If we continue to give them a pep talk and continue to make them feel good about themselves. Uh, so much of preaching today, modern Christianity is, uh, is, is concerned with what makes me happy, what makes me successful what makes me prosperous. But you see, that's not what biblical Christianity is all about. Biblical Christianity is about following Christ. It's about following the Lord Jesus in hard times and in good times. It's about not uh, casting aside our faith and our hope, keeping our, our faith and hope in Him. You see, in modern uh in modern Christianity, again, happiness, joy, that's kind of the end we're sh shooting for, my happiness and my joy. But in biblical Christianity, joy is not the main pursuit. Joy is a fruit of the main pursuit. The main pursuit is to glorify God. That's what Jesus says. I have glorified thee on earth. When we are glorifying God, dear ones, when that is really what is most important to us, and we all fail, I recognize that we all uh, falter, we all stumble in glorifying God, but we even glorify God when we turn from our sin. We glorify God when we repent. We glorify God when we trust him and his promises to forgive us and we turn and seek his forgiveness and we walk in love and obedience to his commandments, renew our commitment to follow him. Uh, that is glorifying God too. Joy is, again, the fruit of humbling ourselves and glorifying God uh, it's not the end of our Christian life, the goal. That's the fruit of glorifying God and enjoying Him is God grants to us 
the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. In verse 4, Jesus says, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. So Jesus was yet to suffer for us as the sinless Lamb of God. And he speaks of that work of redemption as having been finished or completed. I have finished the work, and yet he had not gone to the cross yet. He's, he's speaking uh, proleptically. He's speaking it as if it's already occurred, as if it's already finished. Because, again, in God's purposes, in God's eternal purpose, it has been. God's not limited to time. Um, God is above all time. God, And so as to the decree of God uh, from all eternity, it, it is finished. Uh, there's no doubt, there's no uncertainty about the fact that Jesus will complete redemption. And so he says, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Not the smallest little detail would be overlooked by the Lord Jesus in fulfilling all that was necessary to save you and to save me. Everything, down to the smallest thing that perhaps we would have overlooked. You know, we're thinking kind of in the large uh, areas, but there are all of these, all of these events, there are all of these actions that need to be taken, uh, that need to take place to get to the big events. All of these uh, details that need to make up this plan, but nothing is going to fail in any respect to bring about the salvation of his people. Jesus did not simply start and begin what was necessary to redeem us. He says, I have finished it. He finished and he completed it. That's what he said on the cross. It is finished in John 19.30. Redemption is completed. May God grant to us the grace to finish that which we begin, to complete the good work that God has worked within us. He says he will perfect, in Philippians chapter 1, he will perfect the work that he has begun in us until the day of Christ Jesus. He's not going to leave anything undone. But how quick are we, when times get hard and difficult, are, how quick are we to, to want to quit, to give up, to say, I don't want to do this anymore. This is too hard. Uh, I don't see the benefit of this. I don't, I'm not happy. I'm not, uh, uh, I don't see that I'm receiving anything from this, uh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna throw it aside. I'm just gonna quit. Um, that's not the, the grace that the Lord Jesus gives. He doesn't call us to be quitters. 
It doesn't call us to surrender when it gets hard. You see, true faith and true courage are manifested not when it's easy, but when it is hard. When we feel like we can't take another step, then we see true courage. Whether we're going to keep moving on, even if it feels like that this is not working out the way that I want it to work out. But nevertheless, the Spirit of Jesus is, I have finished the work. I've not left it incomplete. I've not quit just because I have to suffer. I'm going to finish this work for the sake, for the glory of God and for the sake of those that I love. I'm going to finish this work. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, and the older that I get, the more I think about this uh, because death is much nearer uh, by way of years anyway. Death could come at any moment to any of us, but by way of years, it's certainly much nearer to me now than, than it was uh, when I was young like many of you. But he says, I, this is at the end of his life. He knows that his departure, his death is about to happen. And he says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I've not cast aside my faith, my hope in Christ and my obedience to him just because it was hard. I have finished the course. I've run the race. Likewise in Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 through 2. We read, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, that cloud of witnesses are mentioned in chapter 11, all of the, the hall of fame of faith, um, those that are mentioned there, those are the witnesses that have gone before Paul uh, and uh, before us as well. There are many more witnesses because there are 2,000 years more since the time of Paul that have become great witnesses, a cloud of witnesses for us also to walk in their path as they walked in faithfulness to Christ. But he continues, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. <clears throat> Let us not run with impatience that uh, God has to do everything in a hurry. God has to take care of all of the ways in which we uh, see injustice or uh, God has to take care of our suffering or our afflictions or our trials right now. No, um, he says we need to run with patience. That is with perseverance. 
looking, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. <coughs> We're not running this race by ourselves. <coughs> um, Jesus has run this race ahead of us, and he has finished the race for us so that he might strengthen us, that he might help us to finish the race. But we only are going to finish the race if we don't quit. We're only going to finish the race if we don't uh, cast aside our hope, our faith, our love, trust in him, obedience to him. That's the only way, again, by his power, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, but every Christian, every true Christian finishes the race. No true Christian stops. No true Christian quits. All true Christians run with perseverance the race that God has set before them. Your race is going to be different from my race. My race is going to be different from yours. But we all have a race to run. And God has promised that we will finish when we are looking to him, the author and the finisher of our faith, and not at our circumstances, not at others, but looking to him. Verse 5, Jesus continues his prayer. <clears throat> and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So the state of Christ's earthly humiliation was about to be completed uh, with his death and his burial. And Jesus prays that the Father would usher him into his state of exaltation by means of his resurrection, ascension, enthronement to the right hand of the Father, that he might enjoy the glory that he did before the world was made. Of course, as you think about this, there's, there's a great mystery here, um, and one that certainly I cannot uh, comprehend. Um, this glory which the Son prays that he would enjoy with the Father in his exaltation uh, will be different than the glory that he enjoyed with the Father before the world began. How? Well, the glory that the Son will enjoy with the Father when he ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God will not be only as God, but will be as the God-man. He will be in heaven forever fully God and fully man, true God and true man. He was not, the incarnation happened in a period of history, so the glory that he enjoyed with the Father before the world began 
was not as the God-man, but was as simply God, the Son of God. So there will be a difference. That's not to say uh, that uh, that glory which he enjoys is qualitatively going to be different, but there's something that's been added. He's added humanity. As I said, the, 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 there is a mystery about this that transcends our, I think, our, our full comprehension of that glory from all eternity and then the glory that he would enjoy with the Father as the God-man. If that was the prayer of Jesus to enjoy that glory with the Father, should that not be also our prayer? Not that we would pray, Lord, let me enjoy the glory I had with Thee uh, before the world began. Um, uh, we're, we're not Mormons and believe that all of these eternal spirits were, were created and then at some time that uh, they were put into human bodies. Uh, no, uh, we can't, we, we, our desire and our prayer would simply be that we might enjoy his glory with him in heaven. Again, I, I simply ask the question for you to think about how, how much time or how often does even that thought come to your mind? How often in prayer, Lord, I desire, I want to enjoy that glory with thee for all eternity. Are we so, again, consumed with the things of this world that the thought of that glory, that blessed glory, whatever joy we've experienced in this world for even a moment, cannot compare at all with the glory, the joy, the peace, uh, the, the satisfaction, uh, the blessedness that we will enjoy with the Lord forever and ever. In thy presence, David pray, uh, says in the prayer to God, in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611. Verse 6. Jesus continues his prayer. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. So Jesus, in continuing his prayer, prays that to the Father that he has made known the Father, he has made known the words of the Father, he's made known the truth that comes from the Father, a right knowledge of God, he's made known to those that the Father gave to him, he's made known God's mighty works, he's made known to them uh, that pure doctrine and worship. He's made known unto his own God's will. He's made known to his, 
immediately who he's praying for are his disciples who are there with him as he's praying this prayer. But as we'll see, as the chapter unfolds, uh, he says, I pray not for them alone. I pray for all of those who will believe uh, through their testimony and witness, which includes us. So he's praying for us as well. This prayer is not just for the, the disciples who are there in the room or wherever he is in, in praying this, uh, outside, perhaps in the, in the, under the starry sky, lifting up his eyes to heaven, it says. And so uh, he's praying for us as well, that, uh, that he, through his spirit and through his word, he has made known to us the words, the mighty works, the truth, the doctrine, the worship, God's will to us as well. See, this is why the world has gone astray. And to whatever degree the church likewise has followed the world and going astray, it's why there is so much confusion in the world. They do not have a true knowledge of God. Where there's not a true knowledge of God, there's only, again, confusion, uh, coming up with our own truth, our own history. Uh, everything becomes relative. There are no absolutes. It's what makes me feel good or what I think is right uh, when there is no true knowledge of God, no absolutes. When we can basically toy with and flirt with the truth, then we're saying, I don't really believe that there are any absolutes. Um, but again, biblical Christianity says there are absolutes. Because God is an absolute God who gives absolute truth. Uh, he doesn't say one thing and contradict it the next time. He doesn't hold at the same time uh, contradictory uh, truths or contradictory uh, statements one to another. Uh, he's not schizophrenic. Uh, God, God is always true. He always speaks that which is true. And if we don't begin there with the fact that there is absolute truth, then we're going to be fudging and, and making excuses all the way through uh, our professing Christian life. Um, uh, we're going to be like Eve, hath God said? That's what she said. Or the Satan said to Eve, um, have God said? And uh, that's what Satan is saying to the world. That's what Satan is saying even to so many in the church. Have God really said that? Have God really commanded that? Have God really taught that? When in fact, again, so many of these doubts and, and innovations are simply the workings of our own imagination 
and our own uh, relativity, thinking that there are no absolutes, different strokes for different folks, you know, everyone just doing what is right in their own eyes. That's not biblical Christianity, friends. True knowledge of God, and I, I submit this to you as one way to tell one little evidence, one piece of, of um, evidence that you can, can use um, by way of whether you are being taught true knowledge of God, whether you're learning the true knowledge of God. The true knowledge of God is many things, but let me just indicate the true knowledge of God reveals to us our desperate need of Him. True knowledge of God shows us our, our sinful corruption. True knowledge of God and what God has revealed tells us that we owe everything to Him. From every sip of water, every morsel of food, our families, and especially our salvation all belongs to Him. And so, true knowledge of God turns us away from ourselves to Him, to glorify Him, to enjoy Him. True knowledge of God doesn't exalt man. True knowledge of God puts us down and exalts Him. We are only lifted up when we humble ourselves. That's what James says, that if we would be exalted, we must humble ourselves. This knowledge was given to those, Jesus says, to whom the Father had given to the Son uh, from out of the world. These were given, these disciples uh, were given to Christ to save from out of the world. These were not given to Christ uh, out from among a greater body of Christians as if the Father chose these disciples uh, out from among professing believers. No, he's talking about an election to salvation from out of the world. Here's the sinful, corrupt world. The Father has given taken some out of that sinful, corrupt world and has given them to the Son, is what he says. Is what Jesus says. They were given to me by the Father to save. The Father chooses, elects, the Son redeems and saves. The Spirit applies that redemption to those whom God has chosen from all eternity. Ephesians 1.4 is uh, where, again, Paul says that we were chosen 
in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. So we weren't chosen because we were holy. We weren't chosen because he foresaw faith in us. We were chosen because he set his love upon us graciously of his mercy. He deals with those he did not choose justly and giving them the judgment that they deserve. We deserved it too. He did not choose us because we were better than the next person. He chose us to glorify his grace and his mercy in rescuing and saving those who don't deserve his salvation. None of us. In 2 Timothy 1.9 The Apostle Paul says in regard to these matters, who hath saved us, speaking of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, <clears throat> not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Before the world began. The elect, those chosen in Christ Jesus, the elect evidence their election by not simply their profession, but by their fruit, by their fruit, the fruit of their life. A good tree does not bring forth bad fruit. In other words, not that we never sin, but even when we sin, the good fruit is that we sincerely repent. We change. We're not the same people. We don't continue to do the same things and just repeat the same things over and over and over again. There's a change of heart and a change of mind. Again, that's sanctification. It's not perfection, but it's sanctification and growth in Christ. That's an evidence of election. As Jesus says in verse 6, they have kept thy word. Evidence of that the Father has given to them, has given them to the Son by way of election and then redemption is they have kept thy word. They want to keep it. They desire to keep it. And even when they fail to keep it, they keep it by repenting and seeking God's forgiveness and changing uh, their, their walk, their talk, their speech, their conduct, their relationships. Verses 7 through 8. Jesus prays, Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee, for I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. So here the disciples know that the words they have heard from Jesus and the works they have seen Jesus perform as miraculous works uh, are the words and the works which the Father has given to the Son. 
uh, to perform. So Jesus is praying and is acknowledging that these disciples know and they have come to believe. Uh, Judas is not included amongst these. He's not present. He's already left, so he's not praying for Judas here. He's praying for these disciples, uh, the 11 that, uh, that are, though they fall away, temporarily run and hide out of fear, uh, they are the ones that the Lord Jesus uh, has come to save. He acknowledged, Jesus acknowledges he did not come on his own, but he was sent by the Father. Uh, likewise, uh, no one uh, who preaches or teaches uh, God's word in, in some authoritative manner is sent by himself. Um, simply because somebody feels that like they have a calling you know within <clears throat> if that is the only um, call that they have or claim to have uh, then um, they are missing the point uh, here of what jesus is saying he was sent uh, by the father how are we sent to our ministers Yes, we have an inward call. I believe that's, that is part of the call. But there's also the outward call. There's also the call of the church to call that man to be a minister. And it is the call given at the time that that man is ordained by the presbytery by other ministers, elders who have gathered together, who have examined him uh, in his doctrine, examined him in his life, uh, examined him in his family, examined him, uh, and then put him forward to be ordained and commissioned uh, to preach and to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 5 uh, verse 4, the apostle says, he's speaking of the priesthood, but likewise uh, this pertains to the ministry, whether Old Testament or New Testament, the, the, the truth is the same. And no man taketh this honor to be a minister taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Likewise, in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15, there is an orderly way. Someone doesn't just feel impassioned uh, to go forth and just uh, runs without being sent. Romans 10, beginning with verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? 
lest they be sent. That is, sent by uh, those uh, who commissioned them to be sent. Uh, certainly, again, inward, but also outward calling. I find here very, um, very telling as we come to a close <clears throat> that Jesus talks about here, I have given, in verse 8, um, I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, the truth, in other words. And they have received that truth. Um, and obviously the next step is to communicate that truth uh, to the sheep. Um, the chief duty of ministers under Jesus Christ, the chief, chief duties are to preach and to teach and to pray for the sheep. To teach and preach the word of God and to pray for the sheep. That's what uh, the apostles say in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring among the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we, meaning the ministers, the apostles, we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom with whom we may appoint over this business, basically the appointing of deacons. But we, notice verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The chief mission uh, of Jesus was to teach and to preach. He performed miracles, yes. Uh, he cared, he healed the sick, yes. But the chief Part of his ministry was preaching and teaching the truth. Ministers are not called to be CEOs. Ministers are not called to be political activists. Ministers are not called to be fundraisers. Ministers are not called to be builders and architects. Ministers are not first and foremost, whether it be the apostles or anyone afterwards, they're not first and foremost called to be healers or miracle workers. First and foremost, ministers are called to be preachers and teachers of the word of God. Because that, that is what God uses to convert sinful men and women and children, young people. That is what God uses to change hearts by the work of his spirit. That is what the Lord uses to instruct us 
and who God is and what his will for our life is, that is what God uses to sanctify us. That's what God uses to commune with us and to prepare us for eternal glory is his truth. And sadly, I think so many ministers confuse what their primary calling is and doing so many other things when the apostles say that which we are called to do is to preach and teach and to pray for God's people. Preach and teach from the pulpit, preach and teach to lead Bible studies, in counseling, uh, in, in evangelism, preach and teach. It's calling of Christ's sheep to listen. It's the calling of ministers to teach and preach. It's the calling of the sheep to hear. Your calling before God is to hear, to love his will, and to obey his will. John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. They follow me in the faithful preaching and teaching of God's word. They follow Jesus. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father, thank Thee for the prayer that we are going through, that the Lord Jesus is praying for us, not only for the, the 11 apostles that are there and are hearing audibly His prayer, but Father, He is praying for us who would believe through their, their testimony and through their word. We pray that we would hear uh, the word of Christ as it is taught to us even this evening, that we would not put it off, that we would not be quitters, that we not be mere hearers of thy word, but doers of thy word. Lord, there, there is no blessing promised to quitters. Um, only judgment promised to quitters. There's only blessing to those who finish the race. We pray, God, grant us that grace because we cannot finish the race in our own strength. But we can do all things through Christ which strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen.